1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Is there any genre so maligned, so scorned, and yet so popular as self-help? Despite the rampant success of books like Marie Kondo's The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, intellectual circles tend to look down on anything that sells itself as self-help. And yet, in a certain light, the most original form of self-help might actually be that most revered of intellectual disciplines, philosophy, going all the way back to the Greeks. Self-help, in fact, is an older genre than the novel, and we've been wrestling with the meaning of life, I would contend, well before the Greeks, and probably since we first became conscious of the fact that we were alive. So this week, we're going back to our ancient roots and asking the eternal question, what makes for a meaningful life? The Stoics are awfully popular these days. But the philosopher Catherine Wilson joins us this episode to pitch you on a different kind of Greek, Epicurus, whom you might have gotten to know through the ancient Greek writer Lucretius and his work on the nature of things. Epicurus spent a few centuries being wrongly remembered as the patron saint of whoremongers and drunkards, but he really wasn't either of those things. Epicurean philosophy is rich with theories of justice, empiricism, pleasure, prudence, And equality. Epicurus, after all, unlike the Stoics, welcomed women and slaves into his school. Epicureanism actually advocated for a simple life, something that we're seeing appeals to more and more people these days with the return to minimalism, artisan crafts, self-sufficiency, and yes, the Konmari method, which has quite a bit in common with Epicureanism. Catherine Wilson, professor of philosophy at the City University of New York, joins us this week to talk about her first book for the general public, which may or may not be a self-help book, How to Be an Epicurean. Thanks for chatting with me, Catherine. You're very welcome. So why do you think we need Epicureanism now? Why focus on the ancient art of living well in the modern world? What does this ancient philosopher have to tell us?
2: Well, I'm one of those people who has, in the past, been kind of suspicious of two things. Um, One, anachronism, taking things out of their historical context and uh, thinking they have relevance to contemporary issues and problems, since we live in such a different world. And the other thing I've been kind of skeptical about is um, self-help, partly because I think people don't necessarily help themselves. They are helped by other people. And because I'm suspicious of the marketing aspects and, you know, the variety of things on offer and the profit motive. But in this case, I find myself um, trying to explain Epicureanism and saying why I think it's relevant and uh, why I think it's it's the philosophy that can maybe replace what people are looking for when they leave religion— and uh, find that there are too many things in religious systems that they can't believe, but they want some kind of framework for thinking about life, death, meaningfulness, where's the world headed, uh, how should they um, think about their children and their children's children, and questions like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, these are all really big, important questions. And I think before we dive into how an Epicurean would tackle them or approach them, we should probably do Epicurus 101, because you know, the word Epicurean today, or like, oh, you know, she's so Epicurean, means something a little bit different from what Epicurus himself sort of stood for?
2: <laughs> sure. Um, well, I'll say what, what Epicureanism is not. Um, it's not uh, a reclining on a banquet, uh, being fed grapes by a slave, or it's not about expensive cigars and um, fine wines and fancy menus and things like that. It's a materialistic philosophy and there are two kinds of materialism that, again, it's not. It's uh, not consumerist, and it has a relationship to materialism in the uh, in the Marxist sense, but uh, the relationship is um, a little bit abstract. So what Epicurus, as a materialist, thought was that basically the world is made up of tiny material particles and void, atoms and void. And... In combination and in interaction with us, we are atomic composites as well, um, we have this whole world of objects, people, sensory qualities, animals, political institutions, um, architecture, but the only really enduring things are the atoms. And the... Uh, because of the way um, they come together and fall apart, everything is finite. Everything changes. It's a philosophy of flux. Um, anything stable is only going to be temporary. Might last longer, shorter, but nothing is eternal except the atoms. And what? comes
1: out of that? What are the sort of conclusions that Epicurus drew from that? Because that's, you know, very much a way of looking at the world. And then as you explain in the book, there's all kinds of consequences downstream for that, you know, like nature versus convention, pleasure versus pain. How does all that unspool from the fact that we're just atoms
2: boinging around the universe? Uh, (laughs) Yes. Well, that's the, uh, the brilliance of the philosophy that they were able to Quite persuasively, draw so many ethical conclusions uh, from it. So um, mortality is very important. The fact that this is the only life we or anybody else has—it's um, limited. We can uh, pretty much put a figure on it, uh, where most of us are not going to make it to a hundred years old. So this life is valuable, and what we should essentially be trying to do for ourselves and others. Is not so much to maximize pleasure, um, because if you try to maximize pleasure, you get bad side effects. But we should be trying to minimize sources of pain in our lives for ourselves and for other people. And we have a permission to find enjoyment and even to seek enjoyment in the things around us uh, through the senses through the use of our intellects, through relationships with other people. So when it comes to pleasure, um, it's really a a permissive philosophy that in contrast to most philosophy, which warns you that pleasure is dangerous, pleasure is a bunch of temptations that lead you down the garden path to wicked actions. The Epicureans said um, it doesn't have to be that way
1: well, if it's all about pleasure and we're given permission to feel pleasure, should we all just do what we
2: feel like at any given moment? Well, uh, we should probably do more what we feel like at any given moment. But Epicureans were very concerned with prudence, thinking about the, uh, the effects on other people of your actions and their probable response to you, and also on minimizing harm, minimizing the harmful footprint that your pursuit of pleasure or your pursuit of any ambition or goal can bring about. So we're familiar with all the examples of overeating, over-drinking, uh, too much promiscuity leads to bad effects on the self and, and others. And of course, some pains must be endured. You get your teeth scraped, even though it isn't very pleasant, because it saves a lot of pain down the road. So you have to be forward-thinking if you're an Epicurean, And you have to notice how things work in the world, what tends to happen.
1: And the Epicurean way of looking at pleasure in a lot of ways runs counter to the consumption, the drive for consumption in modern society, which I found really interesting and which kind of reminded me of um, Marie Kondo's KonMari method when it comes to pleasure, which is, you know, not just advocating for minimalism, but really asking, does this spark
2: that's Yeah, it's a really brilliant book, and uh, a lot of people, including me, have have enjoyed it. And I think, first, her less is more philosophy is excellent, and her idea that you should really review your experiences and think which things that I bought or which things that I did really brought me pleasure, and which ones um, did I have high hopes for, but... uh, Really, now it doesn't make any difference one way or the other that I have this car rather than that car or took this trip rather than that trip. So I think we have to resist a lot of the messages around us that uh, tell us that doing this or buying this or even experiencing this will make us happy. Some of those things will, uh, but choice and avoidance is the Epicurean keyword.
1: One of the really popular memes, I guess, going around social criticisms is that, you know, millennials, my generation, have killed a lot of consumer things and have swapped um, consumption of objects for consumption of experiences. But I think an Epicurean would look at that and in the end say, well, sure, but is your vacation to Mallorca any different from, you know, buying a luxury car? The Epicurean, I think, would really look at relationships, right, and community rather than just the internal pleasure.
2: Uh, that's right. I mean, on one hand, there there is an emphasis in Epicureanism on sensory pleasures. Uh, at the same time, Epicurean philosophy is unique amongst the other ancient philosophies in, in taking suffering seriously because of the, uh, the role of pain versus pleasure. So an awareness of what other people are going through and the importance of Having friends who, Epicurus says, not only uh, can support you when you need it, but would support you if you ever did need it, is really central to Epicurean ethics. They don't talk about choosing your friends on the basis of their, their virtues or their accomplishments or what they can do for you. Um, they simply look for a, a meeting of minds, a, a meshing of personalities and in that way they're they're non-judgmental about uh, your choice of friends.
1: Yeah, and I think the Epicurean read on suffering is really interesting too because I mean it really seems like there is an imperative not just to avoid pain for yourself but also to find a way to alleviate suffering and pain
2: for others writ large. That's right. Um Epicurus's definition of justice is really quite unusual for ancient philosophy, and even for modern philosophy, justice is simply prevention of the harm that one person can do to another. And that has, of course, huge political implications as well as uh, personal implications.
1: Let's talk about those political implications. I mean, going back to what you said in the beginning about Epicureanism being a materialist philosophy, the really cool thing about starting there is that Epicurus makes this distinction between nature and convention. And that's where things get really interesting. So can you dig into like the political implications of that and what what he's really talking about?
2: I think a good starting point is um, the Epicurean theory of uh, early humanity. So since the Epicureans thought the, the atoms formed the world by themselves, animals and plants, and eventually human beings sort of sprang out of the ground as uh, atomic combinations that happened to be stable. They weren't taught anything by the gods. Epicureanism is an atheistic or mostly atheistic uh, philosophy. There are few qualifications you have to make. But human beings discovered how to live by themselves. They discovered how to make fire, how to weave clothes, how to hunt animals. And all of this was um, accomplished gradually and transformed them from wild, free-living animals, essentially, into civilized human beings living in cities. And for Lucretius especially, who talks about this, um, there were gains and there were losses. What was lost was equality, autonomy, and um, enjoyment in living in the middle of natural things instead of artificial environments. There were losses um, because... The early civilizations became rapidly slave civilizations, and that has, has persisted in many ways. The modern labor organization is um, really a kind of moderation of ancient slavery. It's better in some ways, but uh, it has many of the features of the old systems. And government as well is a kind of semi-moralized, um, what we've inherited from the old days of robber barons and warring aristocrats and oligarchs um, exploiting and oppressing everybody else. So we have to realize um, how we got to that stage and how we can get further away from um, the worst aspects of civilization, and perhaps recover some of the benefits of uh, life before civilization. So there's a primitivist streak in Epicureanism.
1: Yeah, there definitely is. But do you think there's a risk with Epicureanism of too much romanticizing the past in, you know, holding up this idea that we see in Western thought a lot of, you know,
2: the noble savage? That can be kind of dangerous, too. (laughs) <laughs> That's right, and there is a direct historical connection because Rousseau, who was associated with that, um, essentially took it from Lucretius's on the on the nature of things. So yes, there are many things in civilization that we are very grateful for: or hot and cold running water, and and medical advances, and other innovations, and not to mention, um, Lucretius himself mentions all of these things. Um, The arts, the sciences, uh, all this gives us incredibly rich experience, both sensorily, sensually, and intellectually. So we can be uh, very happy about that. But we can eliminate, uh, once we see what they are and where they came from, um, perhaps more of the oppressive aspects of civilization.
1: Well, that and what you said earlier about wage labor sounds a little bit like Karl Marx, whom you hinted at earlier was kind of into Epicurus. And I never really made this connection before, but the Epicurean idea of nature versus convention is really central to Marxism and to historical materialism. No matter how you feel about his politics, it's it's hard to deny that his great insight was examining the structures around him, industrialism, capitalism, wage labor, basically the way society is organized, and identifying that this isn't natural, predetermined, or or really inevitable. Per Epicurus, it's convention, and convention can be changed.
2: Yeah, just one innovation, one way of organizing the world or making something or selling it to people changes, not because there's any particular plan behind it or any macro rationality. It's just a series of individual decisions that create this social world. And One of the ideas in in Epicureanism is that we innovate. Everything changes, and um, nothing is really stable. And looking back to tradition is um, not always the most helpful way to solve our social problems. Constitutionalism um, is a a movement I have never really understood because... uh, It's so contrary to the way an Epicurean thinks, which is that we must constantly be evaluating where we are now, how things are working now, how they're working for everybody, um, not just uh, the few people who get to decide how things are working. Uh, So Marxist materialism is quite interesting because, uh, of course, Marx read uh, read Epicurus, and um, I think he was... um, really quite moved by the idea that um, human beings are a species that likes to make things and that has a sense of beauty. That isn't an idea we normally associate very much with Marx, but it's there in the early economic manuscripts. So Marx's idea was that uh, we would get to uh, a post-industrial society where um, the work was done by machines leaving people at leisure. And of course, we see uh, the upheaval that this is causing now. People are being thrown out of work. People are losing their traditional manufacturing jobs. More and more is becoming automated. But we don't yet have a sense of, of what can take the place of the old system, uh, where people uh, actually earned quite well in manufacturing jobs. And what it's going to take is both a redistribution of wealth in rich countries and um, new ways for people to be spending their leisure time when they have some of this shared wealth. So what's the epicurean
1: approach to making those changes happen? How does an epicurean look at the current structures at this loss of jobs and this income inequality and say, we change this on the following basis like how does an epicurean instigate that kind of social change?
2: Well, in the first place, um, I think people need to be much more aware in the, especially in the groups that are most affected by by this change, of the social structure in which they live and its relationship to the old hierarchical, acquisitive, oppressive class societies that uh, have been on this earth ever since um, civilization developed. They have to understand that um, that uh, oligarchs, The wealthy and powerful who are a small proportion of humanity have enormous power and really are not terribly concerned with the experiences of other people. The problem is not people on welfare. The problem is bankers. So understanding why there's inequality in this country and how pernicious it is for everyone is is the first step here. Didn't Epicurus...
1: Advocate living a life apart, though. This famous phrase, live in obscurity, and really emphasize not pursuing power or wealth or glory and sort of staying out of it. Though I guess that doesn't exactly preclude questioning power and wealth and glory.
2: Well, the uh, Epicureans were famously apolitical. I've made them uh, sound. Maybe more political than they originally really were, um but only because uh, later political theorists took so much inspiration from them and did develop Epicureanism in a political direction. So I don't think Epicurus would have considered political engagement to be necessary for a meaningful life. But nowadays, um, maybe it's not necessary for a life, a life to feel meaningful to the individual. But it's enormously important for us as individuals to um, to wake up and uh, figure out what's happening in our world and uh, how we can improve it.
1: So, why Epicureanism, say, for addressing these structural ills? There's there's been a lot of writing recently, you know, about Stoicism. The Stoics are very popular. Suddenly, how does Epicureanism stack up against um, not just the Stoics but other? ways of looking at the world, other ways of trying to solve structural issues. You know, I mean, I, I guess this can be a question for you personally, like why Epicureanism over all else? And, you know, maybe what does Epicureanism offer in comparison?
2: Well, Stoicism is a philosophy of endurance, technically, in, in actual Stoic philosophy. Everything that happens is fated and uh, there's providence in charge of the world, So the world is going the way the gods wish it to go. And life is very precarious for the Stoic because um, all these terrible things can happen to you. You can fall ill, you can lose your loved ones, you can um, be exiled, you can suffer political disgrace, and you always have to be prepared— To cope with that. And the way you do it is by distancing yourself from any emotion and reminding yourself that these things are just inevitable and you haven't been singled out. The Epicurean way of thinking about this is that um, that kind of suffering is not inevitable if you limit your ambitions, um, limit your expectations, and If you remind yourself of your free will, not everything is determined. You do have choices. You can choose and avoid. There's no point in trying to repress your emotions because your emotions are part of your humanity and emotional experience is a large part of what makes life feel worth living.
1: I guess that brings me to my last question for you, which is, you know, having talked about many of the angles of what Epicureanism looks like on a personal level and on a, you know, political level. I mean, what ultimately does a meaningful life look like? And does Epicureanism offer an answer to a meaningful life? Or does it just offer an answer to
2: a pleasurable life? Well, it doesn't even guarantee you a pleasurable life, but it gives you permission to to, to take pleasure. So, um, yes, in the, in the book I talk about two models of meaningfulness. Um, one is a stupendous achievement, making lots of money or becoming extremely famous or becoming a great artist or a great writer or winning prizes, things like that. All very nice when it happens, but you can have a meaningful life without any of that happening. The other model is um, a life of service and devotion and dedication to others. And here again, the Epicurean says, um, wait, you don't have to go overboard with that to have a meaningful life. Uh, You don't have to be Mother Teresa or Albert Schweitzer. Um, You can if you want to be, but you don't have to be. So meaningfulness is found in developing your talents, engaging with others, Other minds, learning about the world, finding things that speak to you personally. I think this is really important in art, in music, in activities, um, hobbies. Hobbies is sort of a corny word, but I think the pleasure one takes in mastering skills and learning new things is what makes life feel meaningful. And feeling meaningful is being meaningful as far as an Epicurean is concerned.
1: Before reading Catherine Wilson's book, I didn't quite realize how much of an Epicurean I already was. But I can say now that I am fully converted, and you can be too. How to Be an Epicurean is a great introduction to the philosopher I think we really need right now in the modern world. And of course, if you haven't read it before, Lucretius's On the Nature of Things is a perennial classic and a really good read. We'll have links to all these things in the show notes to tide you over until we're back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.